Can I vent to you for a minute, Pioneer Church? One of the more enjoyable, yet most difficult parts of preaching is the task of coming up with a good opening illustration. (laughs) Week in and week out, a preacher lives under this pressure with the felt need to study a passage from God's word and to come up with an illustrative depiction that shows what the passage is teaching. And some weeks we fail. (laughs) Some weeks a preacher can think and think and think, but the illustration just doesn't come. So I failed this week, church. I don't have anything pretty and illustrative to tell you at the beginning of this sermon. And when I realized this week that I probably wasn't going to have anything pretty to say, I started to think to myself, like, well, well, what do I say? You know, like, I still got to preach on Sunday. So what do I say to help the people see what I think they need to see about God? And as I thought about that, I came to this simple conclusion. I'm just going to tell you what you need to see. Y'all good with that? All right, well, here's what you need to see. As we look at Psalm 82, you need to have this simple truth in mind. God in heaven is authoritative even over those who are authoritative on earth. God in heaven is authoritative even over those who are authoritative on earth. That's the simple truth. There is no authority that supersedes God's authority. There's the authority that God has and all other authority comes beneath it. God is, is, is the tippy top, if I can use that word, of authority. See, God rules even the rulers, friends. That's, that's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. And, and maybe me continuing to say it in different ways will, will make up for me not having a pretty illustrative depiction for you to see it. God is authoritative overall. All authority answers to God. Even earthly rulers and earthly authority is subject to the overarching, overruling authority of God. Is that clear enough, church? Well, good, because that's what the message of Psalm 82 is, and it shows us that from the very beginning in verse 1. You see here in this passage that it says, God stands among this, this divine assembly, it says, of the gods. Now, it's important for us to take note of capitalization here. It'd be way too easy for, for, for us to kind of mistake and, 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 and read this or hear it be read audibly and take note of, and not take note of, of, of the, that the G on the word God at the beginning of verse 1 is different than the G on the word God's at the end of verse 1. See, this is because though it's the same word used in both Hebrew and English, there's a different meaning behind each word. While it says God with a capitalized G, when it says that, it's obviously referring to God as we understand the word to be used. It's talking about God in, in heaven, the, the God of the Bible, the, the God who created and governs all things, the God who saves all who come to him with repentance and faith. And now there is no lowercase or uppercase letters in biblical Hebrew, but the capital G here was a good move by English translators to help us to see that this first God referred to is the God who, who is different than those other lowercase g gods. Capital G God is the one who rightfully goes by the name God. That's why they capitalize it. It's it's, it's not a pronoun, but it's a proper noun. it's, It's specific in nature, and it indicates the name of one who is specific in nature. But in saying that, we've got to ask ourselves, well, who are the lowercase g gods? 
It's the same word as we read it in English. And it's the same word in Hebrew, Elohim. Who are these gods? That's a great question. And there's been a lot of scholarly debate that has gone into trying to answer this question. Some would say that the lowercase g gods are the pagan gods and idols that other nations worship during the day of Israel. And I can see where, where the word itself, you know, God or Elohim might make one think that, but there's not much other support for that within the passage itself. So that's not the interpretation that we're going to take. Others would say that this is referring to angelic mystical beings. It, it was common in the Old Testament for angels or, or pretty much any celestial being to be talked about in this way. And there actually is some support for this interpretation within the passage. We, we can see where this, this gathering that God stands among is called a divine assembly. And then in verse 6, we see where they're called gods again, and, and, and they're also called sons of the Most High, which is another phrase that was often used to refer to angelic beings. We see it there in verse 6. And so if you take those phrases, divine assembly and, and sons of the Most High, in a way that some scholars take it, you come to this interpretation that this psalm is addressing or God addressing angelic beings. Well, I don't believe that's the interpretation we want to take either. See, I believe that this psalm is God addressing earthly human rulers. And the reason I take this interpretation is because the Hebrew word for divine in verse 1, it can also be understood to translate to the word great. And so it was just simply say this, this great assembly. And in the same way that the word gods was often used to refer to angels, it was also common in the language of ancient Hebrew for earthly rulers or kings to be called gods. It was a word that, that, that kind of connotated greatness and supremacy, so it was frequently used when talking about the great and supreme ones within the nations that they ruled. That's why we see the passage talk about the provision of, of, of justice and impartial judgment and rights for the oppressed. Like that, to me, that sounds like God charging earthly rulers with the task of leveraging their earthly rule for the earthly good of those within their nations. And then on top of all of that, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 in John chapter 10, and when he quotes it, he was referring to human beings. I, I, I want to be like Jesus. <laughs> and I'd assume that Jesus was, was taking the proper interpretation of the psalm. So that's the interpretation that we're going to go with this morning. I think that this psalm is God addressing human earthly rulers about their human earthly rule. It's not that we've got that established. Just keep that in mind as we walk through the psalm. This is capital G God addressing earthly kings and political rulers who are called lowercase g gods in ancient Hebrew. And the psalm tells us that God stands among them and he pronounces judgment among them and his judgment looks like this. Verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? God asks. So God judges the judgment of these rulers here, and he does so in a negative way. See, this question implies that God is displeased and he's disapproving of the way that they've been judging. It shows him kind of coming with, with this indictment against the rulers. He comes with this charge against them. He indicts them by saying, look, I know what you've done. I, I, I've watched the way that you've read, the way that you've ruled, I've, I've witnessed your judgment and your rule, and I've shown up in this metaphorical assembly of, of, of earthly rulers today to let you know, earthly rulers, that your earthly rule has been wrong. God brings this indictment, and he says, I disapprove earthly rulers. How long will you continue to judge in these impartial ways? How long are you going to judge in these ways that aren't right? And I, it's, it's pretty interesting. God is depicted as the one who shows up among these rulers with this pronouncement of judgment, 
and he kind of sits this weighty question on the table. It's a heavy question that God brings, and, and, and he sits it on the table. And, and this, friends, paints a picture for us that if God were in a room with those who are understood to have the most authority, God would still have the most authority in the room. It doesn't matter who it is. Like I said earlier, all authority, not only comes second to God in his authority, but all authority must answer to God because of his authority. He isn't just the one in charge, but he's the one in charge who the others, the others that, that think they're in charge, they must answer to. All authority, all rulers must answer to the ultimate authority and rule in the world, and that is God alone. But why is that important to us? Like, like, what does this have to do with the lives that we seek to live from day to day? Listen, friend, it has everything to do with the lives that we seek to live from day to day. See, everybody in this room, all of us, we, we either sit under the authority of someone else, we have authority over someone else, or both. And because authority is, 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 is this thing that's pretty much everywhere within, within every sphere of our lives, I also know that everybody in this room has probably seen a misuse of authority at some point. But Psalm 82 comes with good news this morning. See, because this shows us that that God sees the misuses and abuses of authority and he judges it with disapproval. And now again, I I think that Psalm 82 is probably talking specifically about political rulers and, and kings and national leaders, but that doesn't break the line of application that be tied to the rest of our lives. Hear me when I say this. Psalm 82 is good news for you if you've got a boss who mistreats you at work. Psalm 82 is good news for those who have been in any space where the one who was entrusted authority proved to be untrustworthy after all. Psalm 82 can offer comfort to you if you come from a church context where you've been hurt because there were leaders in God's house who misused God-given authority. I mean, if you worry that there are corrupt political leaders in our society leading the nation and, and the states and the cities in ways that don't reflect the character of God. Good news. It's Psalm 82. It shows us that no matter where you've experienced it, you can rest assured that God has seen any misuse or abuse of authority and he'll call the abusers to give an account for it. That's who our God is and what he is doing. So we can take heart, friends. Anyone with authority must answer to God for the ways they've wielded it. And so if authority has been misused to your detriment, God stands as your vindicator. He stands as your vindicator. And yet in that same breath, if it's you who's misused authority to someone else's detriment, might you need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive you. Parents, teachers, husbands, older siblings, those of you who are managers or supervisors in your jobs, if you're in charge of anything in the world, any of you who are in a position where where others must answer to you, how has your use of authority been? I mean, it's a dangerous temptation, right? Like, you got the authority, so people got to do what you say. Well, friend, do you know that you've been given that authority? to reflect the very character of God. That's the reason he's given it to you. Your authority is not about you. It's not about your respect. It's not about your will being done. 
It's about God and how you use your authority toward his ends to bring about his will for his glory. Listen to God's word to King David from 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. It says, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, David writes, the one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Friend, would this be a descriptor of the authority that you wielded? Will those who answer to you say that you rule in this way? Does your authority bring light and warmth like a sunrise on a cloudless morning? Is your rule like like rain on sprouting grass? Do people consider your authority in their lives good for their growth and flourishing? That's what God has given it to you for. He grants authority so that you can reflect him and his character. And if you abuse it, God calls you to answer for it. He brings an indictment against you. We see here that after the Lord indicts these rulers for their failure to lead well and to reflect him with their authority, he gives instruction for what quality use of authority would be. So look at what God lays out in verses three through four. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. This is God's instruction to the rulers. And similar to what he told King David in 2 Samuel 23, God tells these, he tells these earthly rulers here, provide justice, uphold rights, bring rescue and safety. One thing I love about God is that he is always just, just pretty straightforward in his word about what he would have you to do and how we, he would have you to do it. He says, if you want to reflect me and leverage your authority in the way that I would have you to do, then obey these commands. Provide justice, uphold rights, rescue. But the thing is, we can see these commands and, and we can overcomplicate what they mean. Now, we read this and, and we start to do stuff like, okay, God, um, right, when you say provide justice, do you mean we should go and do ABC or XYZ type justice? And God's like, okay, I, just, I just said to provide justice. Go and do just things in my name. Like, don't make this thing harder than it's got to be. I mean, isn't that what society's doing these days? Like we live in a day and age, friends, where you can find more nuanced, slightly altered definitions of what justice is than you can, than you can find people who are actually trying to act in justice. And I don't hear me wrong. Like, like I know that situations can be complex and, and there are gray areas with everything and, and, and it's difficult to make a blanket statement about what worldwide justice is. But might that be the problem? Might it be that we're working so hard at defining justice that we're forgetting to look in God's word and see how he has displayed justice? See, I think that the Bible can simplify a lot of the things that we overcomplicate. Like I know that not everyone in the world is looking to God's word as the authoritative guide for their lives. So this conversation might go a little bit differently with some of them. But as God's people, we need to make sure that this is where we look first. Don't start with a political party. Don't start with a political policy. Don't start with a political candidate. Look to God's word. Like you want to know what justice is? Look to God's word and then work your way toward those other things. We start here. I mean, God's character and and, and his desire is, is clearly revealed through what we see about him in his word, especially through what we see with Christ. And I think if we spend more time studying this than we do all the contemporary man-made assertions for what justice is, we probably would find it a lot more straightforward than the world wants to make it. 
I mean, all their assertions are trying to get back to this anyways. <laughs> like when we long for justice, what we're longing for is, is the exercise of God's character within the world. And if that's what we're trying to, 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 to do, like if we're trying to, to figure out what justice is, let's look to the words of the one who is the perfect embodiment of justice. God's character, friends, is what we long for when we long for justice. And so let's look in the place that his character is most clearly revealed. He says that we should provide justice. This word justice stems from an understanding of what's just and fair. God has shown us that. He says uphold rights. Like the noun rights, it, it, it's called that because it relates to the adverb right. And God has clearly shown us right from wrong. And so if we want to live out justice, if we want to exercise the authority that God gives us in just ways, we got to be looking to the character of God as our model. This is the place that we got to start. He says we should provide justice, uphold rights, bring rescue and safety. And he also tells us who we should do it for. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue and save the poor and needy. I think this too gives us more insight into the character of God. See, when God sent Christ as the savior of the world, Christ repeatedly made it known that he'd come for those who were evidently and aware of their need for his salvation. And we should all know this to be true. Like, like if we don't know anything else, we know that this is true, right? Because without Christ, we fit into all of these categories. We were needy because we had a need that we couldn't meet ourselves. We were fatherless because we were estranged from God the Father. We were oppressed because we were under the curse of sin. We were destitute because our souls lacked their most basic necessity of communion with God. We were poor because there are no lasting riches outside of heavenly riches that we find in Jesus. And according to Ephesians 2, we, clearly, we were clearly under the power of the wicked. But Christ came. <laughs> and with his self-abandonment through death on a cross... And his triumphant, wrath-fulfilling resurrection, he rescued us. Jesus has rescued us, friends. He's given us hope. And because he's given us hope, we're no longer needy. There are no needs that we don't have met in God. There are no, there's no fatherlessness among us because we all become redeemed children of God when he saves us. We're, we're no longer oppressed because he saves us from the kingdom of darkness and places us into the kingdom of his son. And when he does that, we can stop being destitute because all our basic necessities are provided. And if not here, then surely in heaven, friends. That's the hope we have. Like even if we are needed here, we can rest assured that there's a place where there are no needs that go unmet. We can rest assured that there, that there is no, no, no riches that we'll long for, that we won't find in Christ. All the fulfillment and, and longing that we have is met in heaven. And then there's that old thing about us being under the power of the wicked. And we know what Christ did with Satan. <laughs> There is no more power of the wicked that, that, that exercises itself within the lives of God's people. Because when Christ rose from the dead, he exercised defeat and, and, and showed us that he's got permanent victory over wickedness. That's what we find in Christ, friends. And that's why we have hope. And that is why we are to reflect God in this hope and this justice and this mercy that he offers. He gave us hope. And he calls us to do the same for those that we're among, especially those that we have authority over. And I want to be clear here. This isn't a call for us to offer any kind of coddling or, or, or enablement for someone who doesn't actually want help. 
It's a touchy subject, but, but this doesn't mean that we go and act in ways that will grant people temporary relief, but eventually place them in the same situation that they were in before. That's not what Jesus does with us in our sin. When he comes and rescues us, he pulls us out of our sin and it's a permanent rescue that he grants us. And so it, it is, it's the character of God that it, it doesn't show us that justice and rescue is equal to coddling or enablement. The character of God, it shows us that justice and rescue is equal to action that empowers people for better. I mean, think about what the command is here. When you uphold rights or rescue someone, you place them in a completely different state that hopefully enables them to put effort toward their own thriving. And so we want to act on people's behalf. And so if that is possible, they can begin acting on their own behalf over time. That's what it is that we seek to do. And because I got to tell you, there's so much opportunity to do this in this broken world. I mean, think about all the fatherless kids who are probably less than one mile from this very sanctuary that we sit in. All the destitute individuals who are stuck in cycles of homelessness. Students who are preparing to go back to school without basic needs being met. Kids in need of fostering and adoption. Think about things like sex trafficking, abortion, all these human beings who are oppressed and within the power of wicked people and wicked systems. I want to encourage you, Pioneer, keep praying for God to give us wisdom and discernment to see how we can fit into some of these spaces and be a reflection of his justice and mercy. Like, what would it look like for us as a church to, to sponsor adoptions? To open some kind of a program where, where we provide mentorship and, and, and reflect the love that parents would have for kids? What do you see need for rescue and justice? What might you be able to do with the authority that God has given us? And that initial question that God asked back in verse 2, we see that he uses the word partiality. And that word in Hebrew has the most basic connotation of, of someone lending their presence or turning their face in a single direction so that they're partial toward whatever's in front of them and partial against whatever's behind them. I mean, the word in itself, according to that, seems to suggest that part of the reason we may fail to help those who need it is because we're too busy looking in the direction of those who don't. Like, it's easy to forget the needy when we isolate ourselves in bubbles where there is no need, right? We don't see need because we're constantly looking in the direction of those who are like us and don't need anything else or might even be able to, to continue providing for us and giving us more. Friends, let's not be so partially faced that we miss the chance to act in reflection of God's character if an opportunity presents itself. Like if you're in a position of authority, don't just look to those who are in the best situation among the groups you lead. As you go throughout life, seek to have wise discernment about how you can care for those who need it. And then for us as a church, like if somebody was to walk within our walls to worship with us on a Sunday morning and they came with needs, would we be aware of it? Or would we be too caught up with our faces toward one another to even know the visitors among us? Friends, let's pray that God would help us to not be like the rulers from this song. We've seen God's indictment against them. We've seen his instruction to them. Now let's look at the ignorance of their ways and the inevitability of their end. This is the ignorant way of the rulers we see in verse 5. An inevitable end for the rulers in verses 6 through 7. The ignorant way of the rulers and the inevitable end for the rulers. In verse 5, God stops speaking 
And the psalmist goes back into the mode of a narrator. He says, they, I think this is referring to, to the rulers here. He says, they don't know or understand. They wander in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. It's a sad reality, friends. <laughs> I mean, it seems that these rulers, even with having been given instruction from God, are unable to perceive or understand how to act on those instructions. You know, I find it funny that earthly rulers actually used to be called gods. Right? Like they so clearly lack vision and, and, and they're unable to hold the world together. But that is what the true God does. He's got divine perception and, and this chiefly perspective and supernatural strength to see all and know all and sustain all. And so it's a sad, somewhat humorous reality that these little G gods are in the state that they're in even after receiving instruction from the Lord. But it shouldn't be a surprising reality, should it? I mean, they are lowercase g gods. These are human beings who rule with human imperfections, and therefore their ruling would be imperfect, especially if they're outside of Christ. Like if you don't know God in a personal way, you can't even try to start reflecting him in a way that you use authority. It'd be like trying to, to, to imitate someone that you've never actually met or seen before. And beloved, this is why we should take seriously the charge in 1 Timothy 2 for us to pray for those with authority in our society. See, I would even argue that most leaders within society have no clue who Jesus is and what it means to reflect his character and leadership. And so we should pray for them. We should thank God for, that, for, for any time when one of them truly is a Christian. And we should thank God when those that aren't somehow still reflect his character with their authority. Because apart from God's help, they're wandering in darkness, lacking understanding. And because this is who leads us, their imperfect authority will sometimes make it seem as if the foundations of the earth are shaken, like the psalmist writes here. But you know what else this means? It means that we shouldn't put too much of our hope into these earthly rulers' leadership. See, I think American Christians in particular have a unique temptation to fall into the patterns of thought of Christian nationalism. Somewhere in history, somebody started calling America a Christian nation. And that's just not true. <laughs> the nation is led by imperfect, sinful leaders. There's an imperfect, sinful history. And nowhere within the pages of Holy Scripture do I see the name America be mentioned. God tells us in his word who his people are. This is not a Christian nation. He, he speaks clearly about who his people are. He says that, that they are all those from around the world who at different times and in different places trusted Christ as a sufficient savior from their sin. And so the Christian nation, friends, is the people of God. It's a heavenly nation of people. The church is the only group that, that we can identify as God's people, and the church is a group that transcends national boundaries. And so let's make sure that we place our hope in the right group and in the right leader. God, friends, is the only ruler who exercises authority without imperfection. He is the only one who's immune to ignorance and wandering in darkness. He's the only one whose foundations are always sure. And therefore, he's the only one who's worthy of us placing ultimate hope in him. That's why we see in verse six, God draws a distinction between him and these earthly rulers. He says, you are God's lowercase g. You're all sons of the most high. That's God saying, you may be a ruler on earth, but I made you. <laughs> he says, you came from me. You're, you're offspring of mine because I gave you life, earthly rulers. And then in verse seven, we see the inevitable end for the earthly rulers. In verse seven, God says, however, now this word however could, could also translate to surely. And so it's almost like God saying, surely you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. 
And so these earthly rulers are ignorant like every other human being, and they have the inevitable end of death like every other human being. There is no exception to this rule. God alone is eternal. God alone is all-knowing. God alone is able to rule with perfect justice. And so, friends, might it be him to whom we look when our souls long for justice? Might our cry be like the cry of the psalmist in verse 8? Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. With that statement, the psalmist demonstrates his knowledge and hope that the God who we serve is the supreme judge over all. And that one day God will rise up with supreme judgment over all. He demonstrated his knowledge that there's impending judgment coming from God. There's an impending judgment coming from God. Verse 8 makes the point that the earth and all within it belong to God. Even that which is temporarily subject to the rule of, of earthly leaders and earthly nations is God's. And one day... God will judge it in the way that is directly reflective of his character. One day he will do away with earthly nations, and there will only be two groups of people. Those who are his worshipers, who will inherit his perfect kingdom, and those who aren't, who will be banished to eternal anguish. And now if you're like me, you read verse 8, and you remember the question that God asked in verse 2. Verse 8 says that God can and he's even expected to rise up and judge everything that belongs to him. In verse 2, God asks the earthly rulers how long they're going to fail to reflect him in their ruling. You probably read this and ask yourself, well, God, like, why make us wait? Why not rise up now, Lord? Why don't you rise up when your people were enslaved and evil? And, and, and wipe all things out, all evil things for eternity then? Why don't you rise up during chattel slavery in America? Why don't you rise up during the Holocaust, God? Like, why haven't you risen up and ushered in eternity when there's been the extreme of political corruption? You're not alone in asking that question, friends. And I may not have a satisfactory answer for you, but I do have a few thoughts. My first thought is that in verses two through four, we get a picture of God's desire for the world. What God deems as ideal is what he calls for in verses two through four. I don't know why he doesn't bring it about instantly, but it's what he calls for. Just judgment, justice for the needy, justice for the fatherless, the rights of the oppressed being upheld, the rights of the destitute being upheld, rescue for the poor and needy, salvation from the power of those who are wicked. That's what the Lord calls for in these verses, and it's it's a picture of his desire for the world. Again, I don't know why God doesn't bring it about instantly, but here's my second thought. I do know that him calling for it is him showing that he cares for those who are stuck within it. God sees the political corruption. He sees the injustice. He sees the partiality. He sees the oppression, and he cares about it all. He cares about it, friends. So here's my third thought. He's calling his people to care like he does. Until he comes and brings about his ultimate judgment, he's given you and I the chance to be foreshadowing glimpses of that judgment. 
And then here's another thought. This delay in timing that makes us uncomfortable, it might just be an act of grace from God. Like if the Lord answers the prayers that we're supposed to be praying, could it be that, that, that some of those corrupt earthly rulers might come to saving faith and change the way that they rule? And not just the rulers, but what about those who are trusting in these rulers? I mean, you may even be here today looking to some political policy, some political leader, some earthly means toward the justice and rights and rescue for which your soul longs. Let me share a life-changing truth with you today, friend. You won't find it anywhere other than God. He's the one that you need to look to. God invites you to find all that your soul longs for in regard to justice and everything else. He invites you to find it with him. And I invite you this morning, join the rest of us in looking to God as the perfect ruler with perfect rule. Look to him, trust him, and when you can, reflect him. Because one day, you can rest assured that all authority will answer to God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that all authority comes second to your authority. Your word tells us that. And you've even made it clear with the slight glimpses of rescue from oppression that you give during this earthly life. So God, it's my prayer this morning that as we live this earthly life, seeing those glimpses, that we'd be built up in hope of the ultimate rescue from any oppression and injustice that we may face during this life. We know that you've got a place in store for us where you alone are the ruler and where therefore there would be no sin, no sinful ruling, no oppression, no injustice, just just rule by a just God. And so our hearts long for that place, God. And we pray that you would keep us until the day when we get to experience it. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Christ. And thank you for the picture of justice that he himself has provided. Amen.